Hi, I'm Paul, and this is Archonnect Sessions, episode 14. This week, we shared the conversation Amelia and I had with Bjarka Ingels of BIG while previewing the new exhibition of BIG's work at the National Building Museum in Washington, D.C. The exhibition is titled Hot to Cold, an Odyssey of Architectural Adaptation. We published a review of the show on Archonnect earlier this week, which we'll link to in the show notes. This week, we're also joined with our friend Leanne Chang, As you may recall, Leanne first joined us on our inaugural episode talking about gender equality in architecture. Today, we'll be discussing her recent visualization of our salary poll data. And uh, Brian, our legal correspondent, will be talking about copyright issues in architecture. And finally, as we do each week, my co-hosts and I will discuss issues in the news. This week, we'll touch on the controversy surrounding Tom Main's demolition of Ray Bradbury's house. So I'd like to welcome my co-hosts now, Ken, Donna, Amelia. How's it going, guys? Hello. Hi. Hey. Good. Ken, what are you up to? How's your week? Week is going pretty well. You know, architecting. (laughs) You don't say. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so I'm now working on a oh repair facility for large caterpillar engines. So that's uh, oh cool. Wow, that sounds fun. Yeah, I'm dealing with thirty thousand dollar door frame for acoustical acoustical doors and frames for a um, a large dyno room. So interesting. Wow. Well, maybe you can design some uh, acoustical features for our recording studio here. Sure, thirty thousand. Yeah, other than the architectural <laughs> models we have glued to the ceiling and walls for <laughs> for insulation. Don't you have some Archonnect t-shirts around you can like stick up? Oh, and that hang is on. a good idea. Yeah, that's a that's a great idea. Well, actually, <laughs> Amelia and I, when we were in D.C., we were talking about actually, because we were when we were looking at Big's models that were on display at the exhibition, we were noticing that they were perfectly designed for acoustical insulation. So we were thinking, oh. you know, maybe we just... <laughs> call for submissions of people's old student <laughs> projects and we can just like plaster them all over our, our recording studio instead of having to, you know, buy hundred dollar two foot panels of foam. Nice. How was your week, Donna? Fine. I'm also architecting a lot, getting a lot of um, cost estimates back for some work going on and found a, discovered a, one of our historic houses at the museum had a plumbing installation that we opened up the wall and everyone just kind of said, who the hell plumbed this? Like it's a (laughs) mess. My sort of eye-opening experience this week was I read a science fiction book that my son, who's in sixth grade, is reading. And it was published about, I think about 10 years ago. So it's been around for a while. It's called Mortal Engines by Philip Reeve. I don't know if you guys have heard of this. Sam, I'm, no. I'm a late adopter to things, so I never know if, what the buzz about them has been already. But this book called Mortal Engines, it's a science fiction book. It's kind of a young adult science fiction book. And it's about an apocalyptic future in which cities have become mobile and they hunt one another and devour one another to stay strong. So Whoa. the city of London is the main character and London is out in the hunting grounds and the residents of London believe in something called municipal Darwinism. So your your city's either going to win or lose. And then there's the Anti-Traction League people. And the Anti-Traction League are people who want to live in cities that are set upon the earth. And so it becomes a big battle. It's an amazing science fiction series from the standpoint of an architect, uh, uh, you know, looking at how there's levels and how sewage gets dealt with and how there's trees up top. It's just a really, really cool science fiction take on cities. And so I keep hoping it'll get turned into a movie. (laughs) 
That sounds <laughs> awesome. Yeah. What is it called again? Mortal Engines. Mortal Engines. Okay. And it's cool. the first book in a series of, I think, four. And, you know, there's some like Reddit internet rumor from four years ago that the guy who directed Lord of the Rings was going to do a movie of it, but uh, that hasn't that hasn't taken any gotten any traction yet. So who knows? Yeah, but I started looking for fan fiction of it, you know, um, and, and like fan art that that draws how these cities would look on these enormous traction roller devices. Yeah, I've just been thinking about science fiction. And then the Ray Bradbury thing came up, so. Did you find any? Oh, yeah, lots. Worth sharing in the show notes? Yeah, probably. Cool. Yeah. I'd like to see those. Yeah, it's a, it's, yeah, I, you know, started reading it because I like architecture, but next thing you know, I'm like a sci-fi fangirl. <laughs> How about you guys? Speaking of, speaking of becoming fangirls, you guys went out to DC and met with Bjarki? Yeah. Fangirls. <laughs> Everyone's a fan when it comes to Bjarki. <laughs> Actually, yeah, I did notice that. Because uh, we were, we were, you know, with him throughout the entire day, uh, starting in the morning when they, you know, when we experienced the press preview, but, you know, and then after there was a reception and then we went to the after party after and the entire day people were just hanging off of him. I felt like he was just spending the whole day trying to escape from <laughs> the mobs, but uh, he's, he's a popular guy. I mean, he's, he's fun to hang out with and, uh, and he's also very talented. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you definitely got the impression that in the true form of the the extrovert, he gets a lot of energy from external attention. So like it was just when he first opened the exhibition at like 10 in the morning to two in the morning that night, the next following day, he was like the absolute center of attention and either fielding questions or doing interviews or giving presentations about the each piece of the exhibition to hot to cold. So it was it was really an amazing it was amazing presence to be experiencing. Um, and I also, I hadn't been to DC since I was like a wee middle schooler who just hated everything about being shown around all these supposedly significant things. So I had like no real idea of what DC like as a city really is to exist in. And I had like just a great time. It's an amazing city to live in. Obviously for some more than others, there's a clear directive to living there, but it's not what I imagined or what you might imagine in like your house of cards viewing fantasy that like everything is only geared towards government. And then there's, there, there is of course, like everything seems to be a monument, but there's also this very insistent feeling of like just good old Northeastern goodness, at least to my temperate Californian (laughs) uh, mindset. So I had a great time. And um, the fact that I did not lose any of my fingers from it being so cold, which it was not that cold, but I'm just like not used to it. I count it as a total total positive. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great city and it was a great trip. I'm a little disappointed. I couldn't find a little barbecue joint that you know, was represented in uh, house of cards. Oh yeah. But, um, <laughs> Caribbean. We did have some amazing Caribbean food. We did. Yeah. At the, uh, at the union station food court mm-hmm. of all places, oh, so, nice. uh, a place that specialized in, um, massive amounts of meat and vegan food. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And, and, you had the roti, right? Yeah, was- I got a I got a vegan roti, which was like pretty. I mean, I was amazed. I was like blown away. Yeah, I had the jerk chicken, and I I must say I was pretty impressed with you know this food court jerk chicken. It was one of the best I've had, and so recommend that. Yeah. <laughs> So DC R connectors, DC R connectors, comment on this and let us know because I'm headed to DC in a couple months. So that's right for grassroots, right? Yeah, for grassroots. So Union Station Caribbean, or is there another Caribbean restaurant I should go to? <laughs> yeah, fight it out. <laughs> Weigh in, you guys. Let us know where we should go. And- I recommend checking this place out. It's it's easy. It was packed with students at the time, so we could just kind of like found a ledge on the wall to eat eat at. But um, 
Union Station in and of itself is an amazing feat of like yeah. engineering and transportation. So yeah. it's, and it's also right next to, that is where the um, DC bike storage thing mm-hmm. that you often see is like that giant, maybe you could call it a parametric slug, probably not, but it's just a giant <laughs> glass shell um, where there's substantial amounts of barks, bike storage. I almost said Bjarka storage. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely is not. I mean, I know he's in fangirl, DC a lot, fangirl. but I'm, I think he has... Yeah. <laughs> I know he's in DC a lot, but I think he stays at hotel. I would guess. <laughs> and if it's too busy downstairs in the uh, in the in the food court, there's a Shake Shack upstairs, which uh, oh. <laughs> which offers vegetarian burgers for for Ken to which are equally as good as the amazing burgers, meat burgers. But anyways, <laughs> it's a lot of talk about food. This, yeah, uh, <laughs> it, it is about that time. I've been actually getting pretty excited about the new version of Bustler, which we are getting very close to finishing. I've been working very hard with Alex here in the office and our uh, development team and everybody here in the office has been taking turns doing a little beta testing and uh, yeah, we're getting very close. So that's going to be launching in a few weeks. Fantastic. That's super exciting. I got to do a little beta testing. It looks awesome. It's really great. Someone who spends a lot of time on Bustler. The upgrade is 100% worth it and amazing. It's going to be great. Yeah, we're pretty excited about it. Maybe it's going to need its own podcast eventually. Hey. (laughs) I think we should do a, you know, with the launch of Bustler, I think we should do a podcast dedicated to competitions. Definitely. Oh, yeah. That's a great idea. Well, this is a long episode, so let's dig into this. Is everyone ready to connect with Leanne to talk about salaries? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Let's do it. Let's do it. As most of our listeners are aware, we at Arconnect have been hosting an anonymous salary poll for years at salaries.arconnect.com. When we first built this poll, we tried to include all the most relevant information required to provide a relatively accurate look at compensation within the architecture industry. Uh, recently, our friend Leanne Chang used our salary poll data and visualized it with some infographics for a, a study for the ACSA. So we're here with Leanne today to talk about that. Hi, Leanne. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming back. We, uh, we're super happy to have you back on the show. Glad to be here. And thank you for, thank you for sharing the data. That was, that was fun, wasn't it? It's very fun. I, I really got a lot out of looking through this data in a different way. I mean, I think the, the way that you visualized it really gave it, added a, a new layer to the to the information. Maybe you can talk a little bit about, about how this started. Absolutely. Well, so the data that you shared with us is based on the responses that you got, I believe, after the, the new Arconnect website design we launched, and then you launched the new version of the um, of salaries.arconnect. And you had about just under 5,000 responses since then, of which just under 4,000 were from the U.S., I think we're at around 7,000 now. Are you? Okay. So it's, it's yeah. even more now. And we were chatting about this a while back and, and, and talking about how it'd be interesting to, to take a look and analyze this data. And I should say that what we've released, if, if you're listening to this podcast and thinking, they didn't really analyze the data. They just put faces on the website. That's true. <laughs> we're going to, we're going to, we, 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 this first, Pass. It was sort of sticking to that granular level of individual people and getting those individual people to tell their stories um, and just filtering and sorting so you can pick which individual people you want to look at, but not really much analysis yet. And then in the next couple of weeks, we, we're going to release some charts and things that kind of look into, you know, some of the, the trends and aggregate conditions that are going on here in all of these responses that people gave. So yeah, that's where we're at. 
So you've spent a lot more time kind of crunching this data Mm -hmm. than I think uh, anybody else has, including any of us here. What are some of the observations that you made during this process? Yeah, well, um, so a few things. One interesting one was that there was this kind of saggy satisfaction curve, by which I mean that satisfaction seems to start pretty high in early in people's careers, and it ends pretty high. And in those middle years, it's a little bit lower. And it's not a dramatic difference. We're talking about a difference of, you know, about 6.3 on average out of 10 for the lower time periods, um, like for the middle years, and about 7.3 on average at the highest. So it's not an, ex- it's not an extreme difference, but it is, it is a noticeable difference. And, and that's something that's sort of consistent for men and women across different firm types, different cities. It's sort of a general trend that you see throughout the data, which I thought was interesting. You know, on one hand, you could say, well, people who stick it through to late in their career, they're going to be self-selected. They're going to be people who are pretty happy with this path. On the other hand, the decline from, you know, age 20 to the, the mid to late thirties is a little bit troubling. And when, when you see that curve, you have to kind of wonder, what well, does it speak to what, you know, Killian was on the podcast recently talking about precarious workers? Does it speak to that? Does it speak to the difference between architecture, school and practice? What is it, right? On the other, other hand, you know, there have been studies that, that found that people are happiest in general, like people in general in life are happiest in their mid-20s and mid-60s and a little bit less happy in between. So this could just reflect that. I think that makes sense, not just specific to architecture, but I think, you know, in the beginning of people's careers, people are really excited about what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And then they go through a period of maybe boredom or, or uh, you know, crises. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, and then they get to a point of satisfaction in, later in their career. So I, I'm not too surprised by that yeah. data. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I you know, I, I had those, those same kind of thoughts when I was looking at that. Um, so that was that was a noticeable trend. Another one to pick up, I was just looking at the forums and I, and I saw that someone named G. Thomas Z or G. Thomas Z, as you say in the United States, was asking how much of a raise they should, they should ask for after the license appears magically. And he was saying, is, is $5,000 reasonable? And actually, at least based on the, the data that we have in our Connect's poll, I think, yeah, that is reasonable. What the responses are showing is that there's a salary gap between people who are licensed a non-licensed, if you hold experience constant, you know, at any given experience level, it, it looks like there's an average gap of about five to $7,000 per year between those who are licensed and those who are not, right? So that doesn't apply for everyone, but that, that was something that, that I saw. Mm-hmm. And in the end, so you're obviously very familiar with the general content of Archonnect, your blogging, and also use with um, coordination with ACSA stuff on your blog. Was there anything about your interpretation of the data or representation of the data that you found surprising? You mean uh, results in the data that that surprised me? Yeah, I'm sorry if that was confusing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Let's see. So, yeah, a lot of these things are are, are not sort of groundbreaking. I guess one thing that I thought was surprising in a good way was that it looks like starting salaries were higher in 2014 than they were in 2013. Again, maybe that's not that surprising because we have been talking about how the economy has been getting better. But that could be newer data than, for example, what we're seeing um, in design intelligence or in the AIA compensation report, just because they have a little bit of a longer turnaround time between when the data is collected and when it's released. So whereas, you know, Younger, you know, first to third year interns had, you know, stagnant data, uh, sorry, stagnant salaries over the past 10 years or so, eight years. It actually looks like there could be an increase in the most recent months, 
which could be a good thing. It would be interesting to get the most most recent data because I don't think I have the most recent few months from you guys and, and maybe see if that trend is continuing or not. Yeah, I imagine there is a correlation because there's a lot more opportunities right now in the job market for architects, which probably means, you know, it's harder for firms to find new architects to hire. So I imagine that's probably increasing salaries as a result. Yes, that's good news. Something that we found, we also looked at satisfaction and salaries, and we found that corporate firms' salaries are a little bit higher, but boutique firms have happier employees. And this pattern was even more pronounced if you look at solo practices in the sense that when people had a firm size of one, they earn a little less than people of, of larger firm sizes, but they were by far the happiest. So on the other hand, very small firms, two to five people seem to be a sour spot where they had low median salaries and, and also were not too happy. And again, that's not across the board, but you know, on average, that seemed to be a trend that I was seeing. So Leanne, when you talk about that, it's interesting to note that in a way, this kind of helps, I think, direct the AIA, or at least gives AIA some direction, at least in terms of where their lack of focus is. If the smaller firms, the two to five person size firms are not seeing, I mean, at least in my mind, I'm looking at it, I think about, well, is the AIA serving the smaller size firms as well as they could be if there is this kind of, this level of discontent? Does that does that make any sense? I mean, this is, I know this is a salary poll, but it seems to point at least where there's an area that's not being served in terms of either support or just the lack of the ability of the professional organization to see that these smaller firms are struggling, the employees are struggling. How can we help improve those that situation a little bit more? Yeah. I mean, you know, not ever having tried to run a firm myself, it, it's hard for me to speak to that. But what I've heard from people who have, they talk about that being a really difficult size to be at just because, you know, they're not big enough to take on big projects, but they, they still have a payroll that they have to meet every month in terms of it's not just one person, but they have to pay all of these people. And so they do have to have a stream of work that's going to keep those people afloat. And it, and I've heard from people that it's just an awkward size to be at that, you know, you know, I've talked to people who say, well, we have to get over this hump and maybe once we're 10, we'll be okay, you know, or that kind of thing, you know, or, or I'm staying small because I, you know, because I don't want to get to that awkward size. So I don't know if it's a lack of support, um, I guess is what I'm saying, or whether, you know, th there could be some conditions that are just inherently different or difficult right now, given the economy and given the, the profession and the practice. Well, the two to five person type firm isn't able to offer the kinds of benefits that the larger firm could offer mm -hmm. so that... I mean, having worked for a two to five person firm, that was an extreme source of distress for me is that I had to make a decision. And oftentimes it was to go without health care because to get health care um, was going to be a burdensome. And my employer wasn't certainly going to provide that. So I guess in some way that there's, there seems to be some room in there. And I think what will change that dynamic is actually the Affordable Health Care Act. I think that kind of makes that will hopefully will lessen that burden, but... Taking some of those burdens off, yeah. Yeah, I think seeing those firms struggle the way they... And I think you're right, they have been for a long time. I just wonder if there's been enough effort from the professional organizations to kind of address those concerns. Yeah, I don't know. And I thought this was kind of helpful in that regard. Cool. So Leanne, it's been a few years since we created this mm -hmm. uh, salary pool. Based on the work that you did interpreting it and you know looking at the data... Can you think of any ways that we can 
update it with some some new criteria or new uh, new selections mm-hmm. to make make the data more accurate. Yeah, well, I was thinking about that this afternoon um, after we had that exchange on on the blog post comments, and on the one hand. There are all kinds of things that I have this impulse to say, well, we have to define this term and that term and so on. So, you know, I want to know when you're saying what's a star architect firm versus a boutique firm, what is that difference, right? I know it when I see it, but, you know, are people classifying themselves in a standardized way? Or, for example, when someone is saying that they're unpaid, you know, I would want to know what is the context of that? Are they still in school? This is just the summer or is it a, a contract and a short-term thing or is this they're two years out of school and they've been working for two years and they're still unpaid and, and let's get more details there. On the other hand, I kind of think that what's really great about the poll is that it's so true to Archonnect's culture and identity where, you know, the forums are such a large part of the site, you know, they're, they're anonymous they're casual, they're collegial, and it's just people sharing information and stories. And, and I think that like making, you know, making things, you know, it's like, it's, it's like the great thing. And it's the weakness also of this poll that it's not bogged down by bureaucratic definitions. Like, do we really want to be saying things like the BLS says, like gross earnings refers to, you know, total earnings before deductions, but including shift <laughs> differentials and production bonuses. Um, yeah. You know, <laughs> so you probably don't want to do that. Right. It's interesting you bring it up and you bring, you know, you mentioned the the forum because back before this, the current version of the website was, was unveiled and the new salary poll was released. The salary poll, the origins of, of the salary poll started out as a discussion thread that someone started. We didn't start. Arconnect didn't start. Just asking people, you know, like what, how much money do you make? You know, list, list your, your gender mm-hmm. location and your salary. And mm-hmm. that's it. Yeah. And right away, people started responding to it so quickly. And the response was really good because people were finally starting to see what others were making and starting to make a little bit of sense about the uh, compensation issue. So then we took that and we kind of modified the discussion thread into kind of a standalone thread that offered a few other form fields. A little bit of structure. Yeah. Yeah. And still, I mean... I have a feeling regardless of how detailed we make this salary poll, there's always going to be criticisms, uh, you know, of how it can be improved, how we can add new criteria to it. But, you know, I think what we're trying to do is find the balance in between something that's like ultra formal and really, really highly detailed and something that's providing kind of a more general overview of the, the situation that people can look at and get a pretty good feel for for where people are at financially. Right. And that feels comfortable for people to, to share their information in the context of our connect, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's anonymous. The, the advantage of anonymity, of course, is that you're not giving away your own information. We do get a lot of people that submit their data and then they come back and say, wait, I know a lot of people I know are going to be able to figure out this is me. Can you take it down? Oh, really? Yeah. There's been a lot of, a lot of requests. So, you know, Anonymity is really important for people. Sure, but yeah. As a result, you know, we still get the occasional, you know, people that that say they make a hundred thousand dollars an hour that we have right. to we have to weed out every yeah. once in a while. Yeah, yeah. No, I saw those also. Uh, you know, I thought that something that Bulger Blogger, I believe, was his name, in the comments suggested, which was, you know, just allowing a little bit of narrative back into this. And I think that that would also be something that would sort of be true to true true to our connect culture. You know, and it reminds me of. Something that was so important to me when I was applying for MRX schools, which was those commiseration threads um, where everyone posts their GPA, you know, their scores on the GRE if they, or their, 
you know, or the difficulty taking them if they haven't taken them yet, how they're doing on their portfolio, what schools they're applying to, you know, it has this very AOL chat room feel where you, you know, <laughs> you enter your basics information. That's what I really liked about your interpretation of the data is that you presented it in a narrative kind of format. You know, as you roll over these emojis, you get this statement. You know, it looks like an originally, you know, written statement by each person until you realize that, you know, it, it fits into a template. But there was something really nice about that. It added a, a more personal aspect to it, which I think we could integrate into the salary pool by providing that opportunity for people to write a little bit about their thoughts. Right. And keep it in there. And I think that would help address what Blogger Blogger brought up, which is a good point that this tells you what's going on, but it doesn't tell you why. So, you know, you're looking at people that have one year of your experience. Some of them are making 70K. Some of them are making 40K. You might know which path you want to get on, but you don't really understand what that person did differently than the other person. And that comment would just allow them to, to do that. So, and that, that's partly why we, for this first pass of the data, we wanted to just really stick really close to those stories was in a way that seems truest to the spirit in which people shared this information. And it seemed, even though we don't have those narratives in here, because, you know, there wasn't a comment field to date. There are these particularities about, about you start to get stories about, well, you know where in the country they are, you know, maybe where they went to school, you have a sense of, you have some of these little details about the kind of firm and the kind of work they're doing. And although we're going to get some interesting things out of it next week, when we start like aggregating this data into charts and looking at trends, you also lose a lot of fidelity there too. And, you know, if, if all you come away is from is like, okay, get a license and earn $5,000 more, like, okay, it's not that simple. Right. Um, but it is at the same time. The one thing that was interesting is that I actually found mine. Um, and I noticed there was some particular piece of information that was wrong and I could have edited or entered it in incorrectly. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things that I, I wonder about is that I'm trying to figure out beyond letting other individuals like myself and other architects know what other people are making. I'm trying to figure out how can those, how can I or as another architect leverage this to their advantage? So they can't, you can't walk into an office and say, "Hey, look at this poll that was done or this this infographic," and and say, "I should be making more." This person who has less, who's making less than I am, or making more than I am with less experience is, is, it doesn't seem reasonable to me. And so I'm trying to figure, is there, is there a way we could use this information to kind of better our situation or improve the salary conditions? I think so. And I think, you know, I, I was just in the threads and there was someone, there was this um, thread that, that G. Thomas said had started um, trying to think about how he was going to negotiate this raise. And someone else commented and said, well, you know, I got a big raise when I got my license, but I didn't just spring it on my boss when I got the license. I didn't just walk in and demand a raise. But, you know, I had kind of prepped the conversation while I was doing my exams. I said, you know, I'm going to get my raise soon. I know my, my I'm going to bill out at a higher rate. Can we talk about this? And they had kind of laid the ground for months in advance, it sounded like, you know, through a series of positive performance reviews and whatnot to get that raise. And, and I would imagine that anybody who does want to, to, to look at this, you know, if they realize that they, they should be making more money, I would imagine there would be a kind of, a kind of, a little bit of a long game, you know, to get there. Um, because I would, I would love it, but I don't think it's going to be happening that you could just send this link to your boss and then, and then get a bigger paycheck. No. <laughs> like, that would be a really good data viz. That's where I think a little bit of a, a personal story can come in. Because, you know, if somebody's making $40,000 and they're working at, you know, Architecture for Humanity, which, you know, would have been in the past, I guess, if somebody submitted that, 
versus somebody making the same amount of money working at uh, SOM. You know, it's uh, those are two completely different stories that that you know need a little background context maybe to make make sense. Right, of. right. And actually, the architecture for humanity thing raises another thought, which is that right now the um, the firm types includes architect, boutique, corporate, etc. But it doesn't actually include not an architecture firm, you know, something else. Yeah. It's architecture related. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here filling out this information. But it's not an architecture firm. That's what I would like to see added to it, because that's me also. Mm-hmm. And I'm really interested in these people that are doing work that's related to architecture, but not strictly. Yeah. Well, actually, to correct you, there, there is an option for other is there? Yeah. In under types of firms, there's a boutique, corporate, architect individual and other. Okay. But the other, you know, that's, that's kind of a wide reaching, you know, group of categories. Right. It's hard to say what that means. And and now that you mentioned it, I do remember seeing that that in the data and I often didn't visualize that because I, I thought, you know, when I was doing the charts, comparing the firm types, for example, to each other, just because I, I wasn't sure how much value that would add for the readers to see, to see other. And it's not like you could put, you know, uh, you could like, like Leanne has pointed out in, even in the blog post today, you could put endless number of criteria in there for, you could put a real estate agent, you could put all these different criteria. And if you just put nonprofit, that would be kind of, kind of being less anonymous than you would be if you just put other. Mm, potentially. <laughs> I mean, at the time there was fewer, there's not a whole lot of nonprofits. Which there probably are more by now. So Paul, that leads me to the question for you about updating this. And, you know, this this data goes back to how far, and will you be able to set up a new one that could we could then break down by, you know, it's a whole new set of salary poll data that starts this year or something yes, like that? Yes, absolutely. It's probably not going to be a new salary poll, but we definitely will make updates and improvements to what we have right now. So for any of you out there that are listening that have some ideas, send them our way. I know that when we put this one together, we had a, a thread in the forum asking for feedback and we, you know, we had some really great ideas. Now that we've been using it for a long time, I think we also need to start organizing the results by date, especially considering the fact that right now we're in a very different economic situation than we were when the salary poll was opened. So any ideas that people have please send them to us because, you know, we would like to, as I mentioned earlier, we don't want to become an ultra official salary data compiler, you know, that, that perhaps the AIA uh, is striving to do, but more of we're, we're trying to create it as accurate of a gauge and a feel for, for where people are at financially. One thing I can think of, if I could add just now is student debt. We've been talking mm, about that a lot definitely. and that would be interesting to know. That would be great. Yeah. Yes. And yeah, we, we actually talked about that at, at our last team meeting because Nicholas has been doing, you know, investigations into, into debt, which obviously have a, a connection with, with salary. So we're, we were talking about ways that we can kind of combine the two into kind of deeper investigation into, into debt and salary, see if it even makes any sense. Mm-hmm. So Leanne, you know, having looked at all this data, the, the way you have, for me, the most interesting individual is the one who is not licensed, making six figures, is completely satisfied, and is late in their career. <laughs> it's interesting to me because we've had this real push in the other direction from um, posters on the website that have really, who, who are anti-license, who don't see the purpose in, you know, not so much to a degree, but really down on NCARB, down on the NAAB, down on AIA. 
And here are these unicorns um, that <laughs> exist in the profession. And on some level, I go, wow, why didn't I follow them? I could be, and I'm not, I'm clearly not in debt like other people are, a lot of students with graduate debt, but certainly it would have been an interesting path to try to take on. It, it, what were the particular individuals that you saw were that were kind of interesting as a as a potential case study on around that kind of type? Oh man, it would be hard for me to pull out specific individuals because the ones that I do remember that stand out to me were often ones that I was trying to figure out whether we needed to delete and I often did delete them. I mean, there was someone in Rhode Island earning 600K a year as a, as a one-person firm doing residential. And I thought, you know what? I mean, I could be deleting a really awesome success story, but I just don't think that's real. I think that's either a mistake or a troll. So I deleted it, right? <laughs> so so, so there were some things like that. One thing that was interesting to me that, that I didn't mention yet was that I also took a look at the different schools and, for example, what percent of people who went to graduate school at school, at, at any given graduate school, are working in a corporate firm or working in a boutique firm or working, you know, at this kind of job or that kind of job. And the schools are really, really different on these aspects. This is probably not charts that the ACSA would be comfortable publishing necessarily, just because oftentimes these are percentages based on a, a relatively small number of records. So it's, you know, it, it sort of creates a kind of false characterization, kind of unfair characterization that may not be really representative of each individual school. But just to say, you know, whether or not this represents any individual school, I think it was pretty clear that across like all of these trends, schools are just really, really different from each other. And it's not just that you've got high-end schools and low-end schools. I mean, it's not anything that simplistic. You might look at a kind of a group of schools that are similar in their selectivity and similar in their tuition and within that group, they seem to have really different characters just based on what kinds of jobs um, the graduates are, are, are gravitating towards, right? So again, that's not really surprising, but I thought it was interesting to see just how much, you know, it could be 70% of their graduates are in corporate firms, or it could be fewer than 20% of their graduates are in corporate firms. And that's a pretty big spread. So when are you going to be rolling out some more charts? Hoping for this Friday, and it might be this Friday and next Friday also, or we might try to do it all for this Friday. Um, so, so, so we have some looking at satisfaction. We have some looking at the different kinds of firms. Um, we have some looking at the gender gap, um, the, the licensure question. So we have a few different topics like this that where we were able to find interesting trends. So our listeners will be able to find those at the ACSA website. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We try to post our data features. Also, we have rconnect.com slash ACSA. That's our Rconnect blog. And so when we when we post something related to the salary pool, we'll also put a little summary there so that we can kind of have that presence on Rconnect itself. Great. So people will be able to follow these updates on Rconnect and AS ACSA website. Mm -hmm. I'm really looking forward to seeing what more you come up with. And uh, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you so much for having me. So it was great to see our salary pool data being used in new ways. I know that uh, we here at Rconnect have been planning on analyzing this data for a long time to create some infographics and, you know, new ways of looking at the data from different perspectives. But, you know, that hasn't happened yet. So until then, it's, uh, it's great to see that Leanne is providing an alternative perspective on this information. 
Yeah, and knowing especially that Leanne has such a long history with Archonnect that she's, I think that she's really connected to this data in a way that makes it quite personal and reinforces the narrative basis that we were talking about with her. Um, and I see this, just how simple the representation was, a field of smileys. It's this like new form of emoji data journalism, which I thought was pretty awesome. And also nice, uh, a really nice companion piece to what Nicholas has been doing with the Debt series about in two very different ways, but trying to put narratives and personal stories on what otherwise be so quickly are to become data points in financial discussions and eventually like policy changing questions. So I'm so glad that we have that Leanne is like watching over us and I'm being uh, putting out these visualizations. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's a good time to start merging this salary poll data and uh, and some of the, the debt content that we've been collecting. So let's move on to the uh, my talk that I had with Brian this week. Uh, this week, we discussed an issue that is uh, not only very important to architects, but it's also very important to all creative professionals out there working. Let's go ahead and listen to that. So I'm here again with Brian Newman, our legal correspondent. Brian, how's it going? It's going well, Paul. Great to be back. So you, uh, you want to talk about copyright this week? It's an exciting topic. Yeah. It's a topic that comes up a lot in our forum. It's a topic that a lot of people are not that aware of, as with many of the legal issues that we talk about in these segments. And one of the most important questions is really, who owns the rights to designs? Let's start out with an architect working on his own for clients. When he designs something, who owns that? Well, there's there's no question, Paul. When the architect designs the building, the architect owns the copyright. And and one of the things folks may not understand, that the copyright actually comes into existence as soon as the architect puts a pen to paper or designs it on a computer. As soon as it's it's fixed in a tangible medium, that's the, the term of art, the architect owns the copyright. Now, I'm going to recommend to all your listeners that they register the copyright. This is very important. Uh, this involves simply paying a, a fee of $35 or $55 to the United States Copyright Office. You fill out a form, you can submit it online. Registering it confers all sorts of rights in terms of your your ability to file a lawsuit based on the copyright, your ability to preclude other people from using it. But uh, in terms of the actual ownership, the architect owns it as soon as he designs it, whether or not he registers it. But I recommend that he does register it. So what is the benefit to registering a, a design if you are by default the owner of the the rights to that design just by you know putting the pen to paper? Well, the most important thing is if, if somebody uh, infringes on your copyright, the question is, what can you do about it? Well, the most important right you have is to actually file a lawsuit for copyright infringement or send a cease and desist letter uh, in, in anticipation of a lawsuit. And, and the law is very straightforward. If it's not a registered copyright, you can't file a lawsuit. So it's essentially like having a, an unloaded gun. You have it, it's, it's worth something, but if it's not registered, you can't uh, use it for its, its main purpose, which is essentially to file uh, a lawsuit against an infringer. So it's, it's, it's a very low bar to, to gain those rights, simply filing the, the registration, and it has a, a large potential payoff in the event that, that somebody is infringing you. And how much does it cost? Uh, individual application is $35. It can go up to $55 depending on its uh, multiple applications. And there's, there's different types of applications if you're registering as a, as a single author, a joint author, as a corporation. Uh, but it's, it's inexpensive and it, it's a relatively straightforward process that you can do without the assistance of a lawyer. So it's relatively easy and cheap. Now, is this something that would you have to register the unique details in a design or could you or would you uh, register the, the design of an entire building? If you designed a building that was very innovative and it had a lot of innovative features, how would you go about registering? 
Well, you can register whatever you want. So this is this is another interesting quirk of copyright law. I, I can register design for a building, which is totally unoriginal, even though copyright law requires me to only obtain a copyright on, on original works of authorship. The issue comes up if, if I then want to sue somebody for copyright infringement, one of their defenses is going to be this copyright should be essentially invalidated because it's not an original work of authorship. So I, I can register whatever I want. In terms of what to register, each thing I register in terms of each uh, design, each individual drawing, and there would be a separate fee for that typically. So if I'm, if I'm comfortable paying the $35 fee, give or take, I can certainly register multiple drawings. Okay, so what if you're an architect that is working for a firm and you're designing a project for a big client? Who then owns the rights to that design? So it's a great question, and there's two different principles which are, which are implicated by your question. Uh, the first is, is called the work-for-hire doctrine. It essentially means if I'm working for you, if I, Brian, am working for Paul Petroni Architects, and I, I design this building in the context of my employment, you own the copyright. You, Paul Petrunia Architects LLC or Paul Petrunia Architects Inc., whatever form you're in, is the owner of the copyright. If it's being designed for a client, Paul Petrunia Architects is still the owner of the copyright, unless there's something specific in the agreement between the architecture firm and the client, which transfers ownership of that copyright. So while, while the client certainly has a right to construct the building, to occupy the building, the actual copyright for the building remains with the architect or the architecture firm unless it's transferred. So that that transfer is that a clause that would be in a in a typical client architect contract? Well, it certainly could be, and it's it's something I would encourage your listeners to negotiate as part of their agreements with clients. I mean, this is something which should be brought up at the outset of a relationship, not at the end uh, when there's a misunderstanding as to who owns it. But very simply, the the default position is that the architect or the architecture firm is the owner of the copyright unless there's something in writing which transfers that ownership. So if there's something in the, in the contract with the client that says the client shall own all right, title, and interest to the copyright designs uh, here and created by the architect, that would be effective to transfer ownership of that copyright to the client. Absent such a clause or another contract transferring copyright ownership, the architect is going to retain ownership of that copyright and, uh, and all the rights that go along with it. In regards to this topic, I noticed there was a, a comment in our forum from a user that stated that when a client requests the, um, the rights to one of his designs, he typically gives three options. One, they can buy it at full price, which is 10 times gross fee with a 50% cash payment in advance. Two, they can make him an equity partner in the project for a minimum 10% stake. Or three, they can find another architect. Are those typical or uh, reasonable requests? Well, I think it's, it's really a business decision in terms of uh, you know, the particular client you're dealing with, whether they'll agree to something like that. In my experience, many, if not most clients would not agree to one of those options. I guess it really depends on, on a case-by-case basis. I will say, I mean, the proposals offered by uh, your user in his, in his comment are certainly legal. I mean, this is something you can do. The question is whether uh, your average client uh, would agree to something like that. In my experience, certainly most uh, commercial clients are not going to agree to that just because uh, this is significantly more participation by the architect than they would, they would typically be accustomed to. But I guess it really depends on what, what you can negotiate. And this goes back to the issue of why, you know, when, when you first meet with your client and discuss the scope of the representation, you want to talk about, you know, who's going to own the copyright. And if the client says, I want to own the copyright, well, that's the time to have the conversation and then memorialize in your contract exactly what it is that, that you've agreed to and what compensation uh, you as the architect are receiving in exchange for relinquishing your copyrights. And if the client doesn't state that, that he or she wants to retain the rights to the design, it's 
it remains the rights and uh, ownership of the designer or the architect. Absolutely. Okay. If it's if it's not transferred, the architect owns it. It's, it's as simple as that. And, and specifically, if it's not transferred uh, by something in writing, it can't be transferred by a handshake. Can't be transferred by an oral agreement. A copyright must be transferred uh, by an actual written document that's signed or ascribed to uh, by the architect and by whoever it's being transferred to, uh, saying that I hereby relinquish my copyright to you. Now. In this example, the client does not request the right to the design. The architect designs a house for the client. Would the client then be legally allowed to take that design and create a housing development with 100 duplicate designs of that, of that house? Almost certainly not. And the answer is, unless this is something that was specifically negotiated and agreed to in the underlying contract, uh, if, if I prepare a design for a client, that gives the client the right to prepare or to build a single example of that, not not a hundred examples. So the client is not legally permitted to do whatever they want with the design? Absolutely not. Unless, of course, it's something we negotiated for. If I, the client, come to you and say, I plan on building a housing development, I'd like uh, you design the plans, and here's what I'm going to do with it. If this is within the scope of our agreed-upon relationship, I can certainly do that. Otherwise, uh, this would be no different than me, uh, for example, uh, getting a DVD, a copy of a movie, well, that, that copy entitles me uh, to play it once for myself, but I certainly can't make a thousand copies and sell those copies. That would essentially be what, it, what uh, the builder would be doing by taking uh, plans which were designed uh, for one building and turning it into a development with a hundred buildings. So it sounds like the plan should be to, to outline these requests in the beginning. And I guess we can uh, refer back to our previous conversations on uh, past podcasts about how to put together a contract. So one of the uh, clauses in a contract should be the retention of rights of a design if the client seems to show any desire to, to retain those rights. And, and also, uh, we can refer back to the, uh, the conversation about disputes and resolutions. If, if this does come up, we can send people to back to that conversation to, uh, to look at ways that this type of dispute could be resolved. That's exactly right. And I think the, the takeaway point for your listeners should be uh, to discuss this issue at the beginning of the relationship. This is a negotiated point, not something which uh, you want to be addressing after you've already delivered the plans to the client, and the client suddenly says, oh, I think I, I own the copyright to these plans. Well, actually, no, he doesn't own the, the plans if he didn't agree to that. So to, to keep things very, um, you know, very sanguine between you and your clients, if you do think the client is requesting an actual ownership of the copyright, this needs to be addressed at the outset. It needs to be uh, hammered out in terms of the business points. It needs to be actually included in the contract. Uh, otherwise, if it's not in the contract, the good news for your listeners is if you're the architect, if there's nothing about the transfer of the copyright, you still own the copyright. There's no question about it. But obviously, you don't want to be in a situation where you're antagonistic to your client, where you have to send them a cease and desist letter, or, or God forbid, you even have to file a lawsuit. You prefer to avoid all that. So I would say uh, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Excellent. Well, I think uh, we uh, hit on the tip of the iceberg when it comes to copyright issues. So I look forward to talking about this more in, uh, in regards to other issues of copyright in upcoming episodes. Absolutely. All right. Talk to you next week. Thanks, Paul. Thanks. All right. We're back and we're ready for the headlining act in this episode. As we previously mentioned, Amelia and I traveled to Washington, D.C. last week for the preview of the Hot to Cold exhibition at the National Building Museum, which is featuring Big's work as it covers the climates across the globe. So after we previewed the exhibition, we had a chance to sit down in a nice quiet room and talk to the man himself. Let's listen to that now. So welcome, Bjarke. Welcome to Archonnect Sessions. This is uh, great to have you. 
It's a pleasure. <laughs> so we're sitting in a location upstairs in the National Building Museum. We just saw Hot to Cold, awesome exhibition. And we noticed that most of the curation and the presentation of the exhibition, it's a lot of international names, a lot of collaborators um, working with the presentation of the exhibition as well as the materials involved with it. We were wondering, with this international scope, coming to D.C., how do you want to manage that relationship between yourself as a uh, kind of an adopted American architect and the relationship to D.C. and that international focus? I think, I mean, architecture is always by its nature, and I think that's kind of the point of this exhibition, a child of a, a local set of circumstances. But of course, as a, an architect or like a, a group of architects that operate internationally, we in a way have this like uh, opportunity to always go on this architectural safari where we quite often go to a new place. We try to immerse ourselves in it, understand what makes it tick, and then maybe with a fresh set of minds, make, of course, informed proposals for how to intervene in this, this new context. And I think, personally, we almost like always end up you know, things always seem to collide in a way, sort of like, so, like really when I started coming to Washington DC for the first time, first it was because I was invited to speak at the, at the Kennedy Center, then uh, at the National Building Museum. Then we were like trying to uh, get a job for the Smithsonian. And, you know, then like at, at that point, I was also like really sucked into both House of Cards and Homeland. And, uh, and you know, so suddenly it becomes a thing where you start diving into a situation and suddenly everything is about Washington and you know every time you open a newspaper there's something about Washington and and I think in that sense like almost like a like a journalist going on a research binge to sort of uh, find out everything about a story as, as architects we um, even though we work in a lot of different situations we, we tend to have like these uh, moments where we really uh, own in on a, on a certain subject and then uh, in a way sort of in a short period of time, acquire a lot of knowledge about the subject, which allows us somehow to start uh, uh, acting in it. So you've been referred to as a leader in the new generation of architects. What do you think that new generation is? Uh, what are the challenges and the responsibilities of this new generation? I think, I mean, I, I don't know to what extent there is like a, a coherent uh, generation, uh, but uh, I think it's also hard to sort of, because like in a lot of, the, a lot of the people we compete with today, for jobs is people that are of a much, uh, you know, maybe one or two generations uh, ahead of us. So, so there's something uh, confusing there. And then I think secondly, maybe like, maybe just speaking from my own point of view, I started studying architecture in 1993. And it was like the the late days of, of deconstructivism. I think Liebeskind had just won the Jewish Museum in Berlin, you know, Eisenman had built some of his uh, pastel-colored things, and f faith in that direction was maybe starting to dwindle. And then there was like a new kind of new minimalism thing with like Switzerland and, uh, and maybe Finland, maybe some Spain coming in. So like it was kind of a confusing point, but I think architecture had still was still operating in this like purely aesthetic and almost like introspective belly button gazing, uh, isolation from the rest of the world in a way. And I think it was like a, a, a kind of obvious backlash that let's say in the post-war 50s and 60s, there was like a lot of growth. There was like uh, in Europe, there was like the rebuilding after the Second World War. There was like uh, an economic boom. 
that led to like uh, an urban expansion, like suburbanization. And architects were like at the core of this. So like there was a lot of things that needed to happen. And modernism was like this great heroic response. And then there was like a handful of like unfortunate, maybe like rather monotonous uh, projects in terms of like modern programming, uh, like housing uh, projects, also with, you know, public housing where instant gatifications, you know, made it like socially unsustainable. And there was this moment, um, I think it was Robert Venturi, but I could be wrong, or Charles Jenks, who called uh, the destruction of Pruitt Igo in uh, St. Louis, the end of modernism in America, like this heroic 42 slabs uh, designed by Yamasaki. I think one of the architects who have had the most buildings destroyed uh, in his lifetime, it doesn't stop with uh, Pruitt Igo and the World Trade Center. Actually, uh, he also did a giant 600,000 square foot U.S. personnel building that with archives of, uh, of U.S. soldiers that burned two weeks after the uh, end of the, uh, of the Vietnam War. So, like, there's something about this guy. But in any case, so, like, there was, like, a lot of uh, social difficulties resulting from these architectural utopian visions. The blame was not probably entirely on the architecture, but also on a lot of other conditions. But somehow, architects and the world lost confidence in architecture, and it became this very introspective, you know, then it led to postmodernism. I think postmodernism, in a way, revolves around some of the things we're talking about here. Because, like, Rudovsky's exhibition, Architecture Without Architects, was a criticism of the monotony of the vocabulary of the universal style of modernism or the international style of modernism. And by looking at vernacular architecture, like, tomorrow, try to identify more exciting architectural vocabularies, but somehow it resulted in a very sort of superficial counter-reaction where postmodernism started like borrowing, you know, the stylistic elements of vernacular vocabularies or like classic vocabularies to make the boring boxy buildings more visually exciting. And then deconstructivism was like some absurd abstract uh, attempt to make something interesting, but still not dealing with the core of what architecture is, like the accommodation of human life. Then minimalism became some kind of a counter-reaction. And then I think our generation, once again, we see the architect as not isolated from society or like some artist doing his own little thing or her own little thing, but rather, you know, someone that could play a key role in society and in maybe helping society formulate where they want to go in by manifesting it into concrete visions of a potential future. I think in sociology, you talk about naturally emerging leadership happens when an individual or in a group manages to formulate the shared vision better than anyone else in the group then people will naturally seek towards uh, this person because they can all get behind that vision. And I think architecture could be that. It could be a way of manifesting into physical form the concerns and desires and dreams of, of society, of, of different people, and putting it forward in concrete visions that people can, uh, can get behind. So I think in that sense, maybe our generation, or at least what I think what we represent is a greater belief in the profession and a greater belief in the profession's capacity to actually 
create these concrete visions that can actually propel society as a human project uh, forward. Do you see your cultural Danish background as as a major influence in your work? Because I know that uh, Denmark uh, famously has a high level of, of respect for culture and happiness in general. Do you think that that you've kind of imported that that cultural stance? I think, I mean, the funny thing is when we started working in Denmark, we were deemed as like highly un-Danish. Uh, and I think now, 15 years later, I think we almost like represent what people see as uh, as Danish architecture, including uh, I think Danish architecture has also changed a lot over those years. I think having moved here, I definitely realized that some of the things, you know, Denmark, first of all, there there is a, like an, a deeply rooted like environmental concern in Scandinavia. So like also like 25% of the energy in Denmark comes from windmills, even like sort of, there's like some really high environmental standards set out the, the, the groundwater reform uh, from the 70s, like really put a lot of like regulations on what you could do with the, uh, the water. And as a result, nobody questions the environment as a priority in Denmark. And also Denmark is the most socially equal country in the world. So the distance, the financial distance between the richest and the poorest is the shortest in Denmark. We believe in massive redistribution of wealth. You pay two thirds of your income in tax if you if you earn more than fifty thousand bucks a year. So uh, and you 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 pay you pay twenty five percent VAT. So like uh, there's like this unquestioned social responsibility also, and I think it's quite clear that, and I think that's also why the whole exhibition is focusing on those two elements: the environmental impact and the social impact as the two you know, crucial dimensions of, uh, of architecture. It is something you take for granted, actually, as a Dane. And therefore, you might not see it when you're immersed in it. But I think having arrived here in America, it, it has been more, become more clear to me how uh, culturally coded, uh, you know, we've, uh, we've come. Yeah, without that strong post-war mentality of rebuilding and social welfare, the U.S. is a completely different building landscape and architecturally historical landscape to be working in. And I think that's why also in the U.S. or internationally, BIG has kind of a different, we, we view BIG as a Danish firm because those social and environmental factors that you're talking about. But that may have individually at the beginning might have distinguished you from the mainstream Danish market because of maybe your actual style, your the way you represent your work, the playfulness that is inherent to all most, as far as I know, all of your projects have a very pronounced degree of playfulness and seductive playfulness. So we were wondering, how does that factor into your work, the idea of playfulness, and also how that comes into actually how you're running the firm, like the studio culture and such? I think playfulness obviously is a very important element in experimentation because I, mean, I think we are very careful in the beginning of a project to try to identify or analyze the situation, identify what are the key criteria, what is the greatest problem, what's the greatest potential, try to get an overview of what are the questions we need to answer. But then that doesn't automatically give you the answer. It's just like you, now you have the right questions, then you have to like try different it's almost like a hypothetic deductive method where you put forward different propositions and you see how they perform by evaluating them. So in that, in that sense, the creative moment actually comes through playful experimentation because you, you can't just deduct 
like like a mathematical equation, what is now going to be the architectural response? You have to put in different ideas and see how they perform against the uh, you know the selection criteria that you have established. So without the element of playfulness, you won't be able to find unexpected uh, ideas. Also, even when you look look at Nietzsche in Zarathustra, he talks about the three transformations. Uh, you know, the camel that carries the uh, you know, the, it's, it's old values in the lump on the back, on the bump on the back into the desert. Then it transforms into the lion that battles against the, the imperative, like the dragon that says you must or you shall to find freedom. And then it transforms into the last uh, transformation, which is the, the child, the playful child, like the artist philosopher that through play and experimentation creates new values and new concepts. So, like, there is something, like, seriously important about uh, playfulness uh, without which we couldn't, you could never, like, arrive at, uh, like, in a way, it's almost like architecture, you, are, you have to be both left and right brain, to, you know, to qualify what you're doing and to sort of understand the situation, you have to be very left brain, but then in order to generate unexpected or untested uh, solution models, you need to be very uh, uh, right brain, and it's in the encounter between the two that something interesting happens. I think that a lot of people in the U.S. who work for either firms comparable to yours or um, from later, or from earlier generations who are more established in their later years would never associate play just simply with how the firm is run. It's more of a, you know, work till you die kind of thing. So I'd like to hear more about the actual studio culture and how play or, or maybe other concepts comes into that. I think, I mean, I, I also worked uh, a little bit uh, at OMA. Uh, you know, I, I'm a great admirer of, uh, of Ram Kulhas. I think, like, definitely also for, for my generation, he has been, uh, uh, you know, eye-opening. The work environment was a little more punitive than, uh, you know, I could endure for more than a year and a half. And uh, I think in some circuits... There is a misconception that, you know, that high ambition, you know, that, that great work can only come through excruciating pain. And I think one of the key issues in creating a company that can take on great challenges and complex projects and, and, and huge responsibility is actually that you build a company culture where retention is a major part of it because if people don't stay, you have to start from scratch every time. Whereas uh, I think the, the companies that have been very successful in creating continuity can really uh, go incredible places. And I think I've, we're doing a building in Basel where Christine Binschwanger from Herzog de Mont, one of the partners, she was on the jury. And afterwards, uh, you know, she showed me around in their office and I think they have famously been able to create an environment that is conducive for people staying there long-term, which means that they are now capable of doing so complex projects of such a high degree of craftsmanship that they wouldn't be able to if they had to rehire people uh, every two years when they burn out. So, um, so I think also on that note, it's important to, to create a great environment to work in. And then I think secondly, if you are interested in people putting forward great ideas, it somehow has to happen in an environment where the mood isn't too fearful of saying something stupid. So I think, uh, if, like, I even think like in a, in a kind of jokey environment, 
you might actually end up proposing the breakthrough idea in the form of a joke. And then once the laughter settles, you realize that maybe it's not so silly after all. I mean, truthfully, the, the waste to energy power plant we're doing, which is right now eight huge construction cranes in Copenhagen, it's like a $1 billion project. Two weeks before the deadline, we had done all kinds of studies, but we haven't really arrived at some kind of a breakthrough idea. Like we had things that looked interesting, but they were like mostly cosmetic exercises. And then, you know, like we had a meeting and I was really like trying to think like, why is it us doing this? How could we contribute to making this, uh, you know, more relevant to the people there? And like, and like, because of the cleanliness of the technology, we thought you could do something publicly generous, but it, what would make sense? There was like the beach right next to it. They didn't need public space. And suddenly the, the idea of topography came about and the idea of a ski slope. And, you know, we just realized that maybe it wasn't so stupid. And then we, we called up a company that runs uh, ski slopes and talked with them about it. They kind of didn't kill the idea. We spoke with the Danish uh, Olympic, uh, like it's called Team Denmark. It's like a committee that sponsors uh, Olympic and uh, world championships. We talked with them and like they could definitely see the benefits. We talked with the, ch uh, the, the coach of the Danish national sk skiing team that are obviously not performing so well because we don't have the greatest skiing uh, facilities. And like more and more, we realized that this idea, it refused to die. We could actually even substantiate it both financially and, and in terms of like the feasibility of the sport. So, um, and that wouldn't have come out if there wasn't like this like receptiveness for, for joking around with possibilities and then suddenly something uh, crystallizes. Maybe as a last thing on the whole playfulness, there is something about the, the elements of a joke that are a little bit like the elements of a breakthrough idea. Because a joke, you have a story that builds up towards the punchline that establishes a situation that is recognizable part of uh, everyday life so people can think along with it. Uh, and then the, the punchline is a natural and obvious consequence of the buildup, but it's completely unexpected. So it turns everything upside down, but it still makes perfect sense. That's why it's like disturbing and logical at the same time or sort of, and, and becomes funny. And in, in the same way, you can say like a great idea, there's a, an analysis and a buildup that establishes the world as you know it. And then the consequence or the consequential idea is totally obvious and totally unexpected at the same time. It makes perfect sense, but you hadn't seen it coming. And that's why it is a, it is a great idea. And I think in both cases, the cultural importance of the joke and the cultural importance of the of an innovative artificial idea is that it shows that within the confines of reality as you know it, there is space for a completely different interpretation that you hadn't seen coming, but still opens a whole new potential world. So besides a sense of humor, what are the other characteristics that you look for when you hire new uh, talent at BIG? The beautiful thing about hiring architects, and we see that because we, of course, we have other functions in the office uh, it's way more difficult to hire a, uh, you know great financial people or people for the front office or like because it's harder to see what they can do whereas with architects they have portfolios and you can just normally you can just see on the work if they're good or not like uh, and um, so in that sense you know and most people can behave in a you know a 30 minute or one hour interview uh, so like it's kind of hard to bid out, uh, but I, but I think so. I get, so it's it's you know it's ninety nine percent the portfolio and the experience, 
uh, and then of course it's the if 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 you feel that you can work with these people because one of the things about architecture, also like the collaborators you work with and the clients you work for, is that uh, it better be an enjoyable collaboration because you're going to spend the next five to ten years together, and it's not always going to be like you know happy times. So if you can't stand uh, each other, it's going to be a long. a long ride, and the, the results are probably going to suffer. You've grown your practice at an almost unprecedented rate for, for uh, being such a young architect. How has your role evolved in your work since you started until now? I think actually like every six months almost, I have somehow found that I had to somehow slightly alter how I would do things because things have changed a little bit all the time. In the beginning, it was maybe more classic that uh, I was the CEO of Plot, uh, my first company, I had with uh, my partner, Shandra Schmidt. So there, in a way, I tried to cover most of the responsibilities, but quite quickly, I was like, I tried to somehow outsource, like, for instance, like the, when we won our first competition, we hired Finn Nurker, who's now one of my partners. Uh, he has 10 more years of experience. So we actually made him the project responsible for the maritime or the, the water culture house this uh, aqua center we were building that then never got built because of some municipal elections. But um, so in a way, like typically you would try to put yourself at the driver's seat, but because we knew we didn't have the sufficient experience to run uh, such a big project, we made him the chief of the project. We were still, uh, you know, the chief of him in a way, but uh, we were as designers working for him on his team. And then we also had time to do other work. So in that sense, I always, and then when I started uh, big, I instantly went looking for a CFO first. And then after a few failed attempts, I found Sheila, who's now the CEO of, uh, of Big. I've tried to, you know, Kai-Uwe Bergman is the business development director. Uh, Daria is the communications director. So like we've tried to, in a way, always, like even though I, I have at some point had the role, I've always been conscious about like creating positions that keeps freeing me up to do what, I think I do the best and what uh, I definitely enjoy the most, which is, uh, you know, designing houses. So maybe walk us through one day in your current position. Give a brief synopsis of how you would, from sunrise to sunset, what you would be doing. So I, I live in New York. So most of the time I'm in New York. That means that when you wake up, uh, Copenhagen is already six hours ahead. So there's always... Uh, you know, a little bit of catching up uh, with uh, the morning coffee. Then, you know, if if I, um, s- sometimes there'll be some uh, phone conferences that I take from home. And then, uh, you know, I'll pop into the office between nine and 10 maybe. And then uh, essentially now we are 130 people in New York. So on a good day, there might be like one or two external meetings where we meet with people outside. But uh, on a simple day, like me and... Thomas Christofferson, uh, who is uh, the design director of the New York practice. He was actually my first architecture student uh, 15 years ago. We, we will walk around to the different teams and just like sit down with the team and go through where the project is, look at the, the latest uh, model studies, talk about the, the current issues, find out if, if I need to reach out to the client to discuss a specific issue or like... And then we sort of establish the design direction for what the team is going to focus on until we uh, see each other again. And, and in that sense, we'll, we'll basically just walk through the, through the office, sit down with the teams and, uh, you know, brainstorm on the current state of affairs. You know, like sometimes there's a, a site visit. Um, 
I think right now, um, you know, an off like a, a building site always goes through these phases. So like for like the first year and a half, it's just like a, a hole in the ground. And then at some point, like decisions start popping up again, and you suddenly get more and more involved in going to the site. And I think right now, uh, West 57 is at this like incredibly exciting moment where it's really materializing, and you get more and more uh, samples that you have to sort of uh, approve. So I think that would be like a you know a typical. You know, I don't leave uh, very late. Actually, I think uh, one of the things uh, I think typically for me, the day will end between I don't know six and eight, um, but it could easily be six. Um, and, and of course, I'm also 40, so I, uh, you know, we managed to, when we did Yes is More, we, uh, the, the, the exhibition we did before uh, this one, like six years ago, uh, that was like our first like retrospective. We did the entire work, two months, all the writing, all the layout, all the exhibition layout, and you know, I, you know, pulled tons of all-nighters. Like the, the final day was like sort of a, a 48 hour, you know, deadline binge for the book, then uh, 12 hours of sleep, and then a 24 hour editing for the boards. And because we had to do the boards in Danish, because it was the Danish architecture center, everything had been translated. I'd, I'd done all the text in English. And then we had like four different translators in panic, like trying to translate four different parts. So it was like 800 different voices. Uh, you know, I even started smoking cigarettes uh, for like a, a month during that process, just, you know, out of pure disintegration. I, I think this time uh, it has been a much more civilized, although everybody would argue like stressful uh, situation, uh, like for the entire mounting of the exhibition, which is uh, quite an undertaking that there has been no all-nighters. Like it's it's really been a peaceful, much more sort of a premeditated uh, effort. So I think also in that sense, the beauty of growing as an organization and the beauty of retention is that you surround yourself with more experienced people. So there is, everything is a little bit more in control, which allows you to maybe take it one step further than, than you could with everything. It's like a, like complete chaos. Well, I know it's been a really busy day for you today. The show looks amazing. It's opening tomorrow. Is that right? Yes. Here in DC at the National Building Museum. And we really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule today to talk to us. That's a pleasure. Well, that was a great time talking with Bjarke. I can honestly say just for, just by the fact that I referred to him by his first name, I think he really set this tone of casual conversation and was just super charming. Like throughout the entire time we were both as a public entity when he was giving the press opening and also leading us around the exhibition and then also in the interview. Yeah. I mean, that's, I was really left with a, uh, I mean, he's such a positive guy. I mean, I really, he, I can understand that, you know, his personality has, has contributed to his success. I mean, not to downplay his, his talent as a, as a designer, but I mean, he's so charming and so, uh, so well-spoken. He's a great public face for his firm. Yeah. I mean, he's extremely well-spoken and incredibly knowledgeable about all of the, the, pedagogies that he speaks about related to architecture, but he is also just charming. And I met him several years ago in Kentucky. And shortly after that, I think it was a writer in the New York Times talked about Bjarke's approach to architecture being one of radical adorableness. And I thought that was such a great way to describe him. That's totally in his whole, uh, his definition of innovation is something about like an unexpected thing, two unexpected, completely irreconcilable things actually being brought together. Um, right, so radical right. adorableness is that totally fits. within that. Yeah. And he's very good at creating those types of 
easily quotable phrases and terms. So we definitely saw all that on display. And the, and the exhibition itself is also wonderful. Um, really, definitely, if you're in D.C. or the area, um, it's the exhibition is running through August 30th. So absolutely go check it out. The National Building Museum is also a, like a great place to to visit, especially yeah. if you have kids. Just in and of itself, definitely. Yeah. They had so, there were kids running around the entire time. A lot of school groups, a lot of um, educational stuff. Totally recommend heading heading there. It's interesting. Uh, both Bjorka and um, Jimenez, they both work for OMA? I don't believe Jimenez has. No, I thought he mentioned that. I, maybe I'm wrong. But it was interesting that, you know, on, on I think it was some of the videos I've been watching of Jimenez, um, they both talk about fun in architecture, which is not something you hear a lot about. And that was what's just so interesting about that um, Bjarke interview is they talked about having fun in architecture. And it seems that it would seem that there, there, there's a cultural difference between the two of them, but they, that they both get a lot of uh, enjoyment out of doing uh, the things that they do, but from different perspectives. Well, it's, you know, um, Jimenez is Canadian and Bjarke is Danish. And actually, since Amelia returned back from Denmark, where her husband's from, and we've been talking a lot about the similarities between Canada and Denmark. Um, so there is a cultural similarity. I mean, it could, well, there's also the fact that they both have, you know, backgrounds in comic book illustration and, you know, they're both comic fanatics. So there there are a lot of similarities. It was interesting before we started talking with Jimenez, um, before the recording started, we were talking about uh, how we perceived a lot of similarities between their practices, but he seemed to feel like they couldn't be any more different. So it's really, you know, it, it, there's there's a lot of different ways of looking at it. Well, I love what this thing that Bjarke said, and I keep thinking more and more about it, that um, often the breakthrough idea comes in the form of a joke. That's what he said, that, you know, a lot of times you're just messing around saying ridiculous things. And then you go, oh, wait a minute, that actually is a pretty good idea. I, and I feel like I've seen that happen so frequently in every creative endeavor I've been involved in. It's so true. And uh, I think that not too many people use those opportunities, those kind of playful opportunities to investigate or research serious solutions. Because there is a lot of, there are a lot of good ideas that come out of play. He did actually work He did at, work at OMA? He did work at OMA. So I thought it was interesting that the... <laughs> The both of them come out of OMA and they're having a good time now. <laughs> Those Dutch can be awful. <laughs> I'm Dutch, so I can. Well, I mean, Bjarke did uh, comment at at how he, you know, he didn't have that much tolerance for the kind of uh, punishing nature of mm -hmm. OMA. So maybe their their playfulness is kind of a a, a form of uh, relief <laughs> as as a response of of uh, escaping OMA. Well, the playfulness thing isn't also total, you know, it's, it sounds like it could easily be some type of corporate hoopla of just, you know, spouting these ideas, but, but it actually draws a pretty strong correlation to ethos surrounding workplace culture at tech industries of having this, like, look at a, any interior shot of the Google office and you'll be like, oh, there's a slide, there's a like foosball thing. There's like all of these inner, these, uh, organized spaces or objects for, play or for ease of, re of recreation or for some type of like fun to happen, which is a strange to have it be existing as a manufactured thing, but also absolutely necessary. So I think that maybe this is also could also be seen in a way that, that uh, firms like big are trying to espouse similar like working cultures that they understand that really the, the model of work till you die is, or work to die basically is, is infinitely unsustainable. 
Well, the, the uh, don't forget, and this is this is just recently the post that blog post by a particular individual who happened to work at OMA for a period of time, talking about your life pretty much is shit at OMA. You remember, you know what I'm talking about? Oh, that's right. Yeah, that awful one with the rape reference. Yeah, that got taken down right away. He 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 was uh, referencing um, his rape reference. Really got him. But like, then more and more people started saying it's not just the rape joke. It's also like glorifying being yeah. beaten down by someone right. forcing you to work long hours. Like, yeah, it was really nasty. Huh. I hate the I hate to end with that one. It was good though. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm glad you quit smoking. What would Bjarka say? Bjarka would add a uh, no. The other the other thing spin. I noticed about his um, this whole notion of being playful was that they use playful as a way to make sure they're asking the right questions, not as a way to find an answer, but to make sure that the questions they're asking are the ones that need to be resolved. And when he puts it that way, and then he proposes this crazy, you know, ski jump trash whatever combination, <laughs> you're like, oh, it totally makes sense because. You see this sort of thought process that went through. We realized the question that needed to be asked was this one. And it's because of that. Yeah. Yeah. That playfulness. I mean, the playfulness just adds so many new opportunities that would just never be discovered uh, through Absolutely. all work and no play. Absolutely. Yeah. So maybe we should uh, move on to some more recent discussions of what's going on in the news. Yeah. Cool. Uh, there was a bit of a celebrity-ridden news piece this uh, recently about in Los Angeles of, I heard it initially from, it was purported on Curbed LA, of uh, Tom Main is moving into a spot in Chavoy Hills for a personal home. And it, that spot happens to be where Ray Bradbury's, the famous science fiction author's house previously was before it was demolished by Main and his wife Blythe in the process of building their own home. And this has caused a lot of a stir in LA because people are bringing up constant topics of, you know, was this house worth saving in the first place? It wasn't, when you first look at these images, it's a pretty standard looking yellow suburban house. There's really nothing immediately architecturally striking about it other than the fact that Ray Bradbury lived and died there. So people were immediately, or some folks were very quick to um, point out Tom Maine's perhaps unsentimentality in raising the building. But at the same time, as more news came out about it, it turned out that there really wasn't so much going on with the house that deemed it necessary to preserve. The house didn't belong to the family anymore. It was in the possession of a trust. It, it uh, they had the mains had the permission to do everything that they did. So, but it has brought up these strange issues of how sentimental should we be about architecture that we know contained significant life, um, regardless of whether the architecture itself is significant. So Donna, I know you had some interesting ideas of like how you think that the object of this house is changed by the people living in it. Maybe you wanted to discuss a little bit of that now. You know, I've had a history of working on historic houses and I've had a, a bit of experience working with um, house museums where they try to figure out what era of this house should we restore it to? You know, what's the most appropriate era to present in this cultural narrative that we're going to present with the house? Um, and it's just always had me wondering why do we attach so much importance to these things. You know, George Washington slept here. Like, does that really make the house that important? Or in this case, the the house where a book was written, when the book is the product, is the space where it was written? Is it, you know, why do we imbue it with this cultural significance? And I've been reading a book recently called um, Super Sense by the author Bruce Hood. He's a, a scientist. And he's been studying how the human brain tends to look for supernatural powers, even though we know logically that they don't exist. So for example, he has 
gives a story of where he he starts a lecture by holding up a, a cardigan sweater and saying that this sweater belonged to some famous um, serial killer in the news and ask people, would you want to put this sweater on? And people are just repulsed by this, that somehow the notion of that this object had touched someone that fills them with disgust makes them not want to touch that object. And, and it's a completely illogical sensibility, and yet all humans have it. And, you know, I think for architects, we're constantly trying to imbue buildings with significance, right? We're trying to give them this sense of a supernatural relic, something that has this significance because it's been touched by, because it's placed in such a way, because it's made of certain materials. And to me, when you get to something like this is a house where something was written, it just, I feel like it's a little bit, it is a little sentimental and it's kind of clinging to some material thing that really does not have any special significance. Again, even though our our brains somehow seem to be set up to want to imagine that it is significant. And I also think if we want to imagine that it's significant and we also like to imagine a pretty tourism penny associated with it, then there's an added incentive to potentially preserve or landmark status a house or a place. But I think, Donna, a nice comparison to what you're speaking of is the, the house at Walden Pond. Right, right. That's an obviously culturally historic place, not just because, you know, it was the impetus for a piece of writing, but because it was the piece of writing. It's a kind of a entire embodiment of that cultural, both icon and cultural currency. So it's it's something that architecture also aspires to be, right, which is like cultural language, the idea that the objects through which we communicate our culture. I think if that, if people saw that in this tiny little Shavoy Hills yellow house, then maybe it would have been something, but it also, it just didn't show up. What did come up in a, quite an interesting other coverage of this issue on KCRW, uh, Francis Anderton's uh, DNA podcast, she spoke with um, Tom and his uh, wife Blythe about the relationship to the house and the level of sentimentality they had towards it and the fact that they knew that it wasn't part of the family anymore and that had a strong influence on how they didn't really feel affected by it. And this is something, Ken, I know you were commenting about this before. Maybe you want to comment on um, the Maine's notion of sentimentality regarding this issue? You know, I think Francis brought it up to to both Blythe and, and Tom. How, did they, how would they feel if if somebody were to buy their home and tear it down, um, it's a significant home in terms of um, Tom Main's career, and they really didn't feel a connection or an attachment to it, and which is interesting because, you know, I, it's a very, I think one of the things that struck me about it strikes me about people who are really kind of building these sentimental, these kind of mystical attachments or these kind of. It's this notion of, you know, like Donna said, it's unscientific. It's not rooted in anything that's kind of based in, in, in a, um, it's almost fantastical, um, religious in a sort Mystical's of way. Mystical is a really good word. Mystical, yeah. like a fundamentalism that doesn't really kind of, that I don't see someone who's a, based in science and, and rooted in a kind of, um, the way I would think Tom Maine is rooted. And he, he, giving up these attachments to things seems pretty is interesting to me as a starting point. So I thought that, um, you know, hearing him say that it was, and it was hard to hear in the interview, but he really kind of, cause he kind of glided over it. But I thought that was a good way of kind of dismissing the, the objections um, to, to the outcry that people have been, um, you know, to the negative commentary about, about Tom regarding his piece of property. And he quickly pointed out that, the family didn't want it. The foundation didn't want it. They got everything they wanted out of the home that they hoped to get out of the home. 
And, you know, like we were talking earlier, the city of Los Angeles, this didn't even register on their on their radar screen as a significant, culturally significant home to protect. So who dropped the ball here? Was it Tom Maine? Was he supposed to see something that other people, um, he was he supposed to be more connected to the home just by the virtue of being an architect than people who are on a historic preservation commission who, whose job it is to seek out these places of cultural interest? And they just completely dropped the ball. So the I think the the negativity towards Tom is is misplaced in a lot of ways. And I think um, I, I actually think I would encourage people to listen to that KCRW interview because it it becomes very clear in it that you know they, this house did not have any kind of significance that people were paying attention to until they started. Tom Maine and his wife came along and started wanting to do something to it. I also found it it really interesting that Tom Maine pointed out. As a Ray Bradbury fan, he couldn't believe how banal the house was, that, you know, that there was nothing in this house that seemed to say this was a great thinker of futuristic visions of, of, of humans. It was just a house. And I could not help but make the parallel between people who, you know, very traditional people. And I, I feel like I've seen it again somewhere very recently that, that people who like traditional architecture always complain because contemporary architects live in historic buildings. For, you know, there was just that, I think, article uh, about, uh, oh, I'm forgetting the architect, but piano or someone who lives in, in a, you know, in a lovely 19th century row house in New York. And that people always seem to criticize architects for not living in the same kind of house that looks like the buildings that they design, which a whole lot of architects do live in houses of their own design. But it just made me think about the fact that Ray Bradbury is writing all this science fiction. And did people, you know, do we expect him then to have to live in a house that looks super zooty futuristic? Or do we, does it seem just somehow acceptable that, okay, he lives in what he wants to live in, because then his life's work is this other thing that he does. And I think Tom Maine said it, and Eisenman said it, that the places where they live is a place where they live. The house, the work they design for people, that's architecture. That's something different. And I think you could argue both ways on that very easily, but I just find it a fascinating topic. Donna, I remember there's this great New Yorker piece a while back about someone's walking through New York and they have an opportunity to be inside of Richard Rogers' house, who also lives in a similar kind of, you know, traditionalist piece. And she's kind of rooting through his stuff a little bit, yes. um, <laughs> a little bit inappropriately. And she goes through his sock drawer and she has this yep. life altering moment at the sock drawer, seeing how it was organized. And so if you were to say like, what is truly the um, most characteristic object or piece of the architecture towards that architect's sensibility, it's not the house, it's the sock drawer. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Do we preserve the sock drawer? No, obviously not. So yeah, I, I think it's a very... <laughs> that's a great article on Rogers. That's a be that's a great article. People should read yeah, that. Yeah, we'll definitely put that in the show notes. But I mean, on, on another end, it'll be fascinating to see what Maine builds on this, uh, on the property. Uh, it'll be really cool to see what the, their secondary home will, will take, will take to be. I think that's pretty much it for our series of news this week. We did have another fantastic news piece that we're going to discuss later um, on, an, on another episode at greater length, but it has to do with Aaron Betsky's appointment to the head of Tilius and West Frank Lloyd Wright Architecture School. So we'll delve a little bit more into that on a later episode. I'm fascinated by this story, and I will share the the little bit of gossip I've heard about it is that from a friend of mine in Arizona who's somewhat connected to the school, that um, the final 
two that they were down to were for the deanship was um, Aaron Betsky and Michael Rotundi. Now, I, I can't verify that, but this is what I heard from someone who I think is in a good situation to know. And Reed Kroloff was the head of the search committee. I mean, this search has been going on for a long time, and I know because I applied. Sorry, you know, full disclosure, but I did apply for it. Um, <laughs> And it was a total long shot, but I was just like, why the hell not? I'm going to apply. Yeah. So, I did. so I've been following this search for a long time. And the search started before the whole accreditation problem came up. So Taliesin is in a really interesting place right now. And um, I'm really, really hoping we can find out a little more information on this. Yeah. I think we're going to delve really deep into it. I think we'll get some good answers. Yeah. I have Excellent. a feeling we'll get some some good information. Some authoritative yeah. information. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> Probably in next week's episode. Well, it's been quite an episode. Yeah, that was a packed one. Before we end the show today, the uh, the regular uh, stuff that I'd like to finish with, rate us on iTunes if you can. It really helps. And review the podcast on iTunes. We love feedback. Uh, we're always looking for ways to improve the show. So if you have any ideas, let us know. Email connect at rconnect.com, hashtag sessions on Twitter. Give us a call at 213-784-7421. That is our hotline, so you can uh, leave a message. Nobody answers that phone. And um, yeah, I think that's about it. Any final words, guys? Until next week. Until next week. All right. Have a good week, guys. Talk to you later. Talk to you later. Bye. 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 Bye.